I'm Lucy. And I'm Michelle. And welcome to the 17th episode of Tudoriferous, the fortnightly biographical podcast that examines lives in the Tudor era. And today, Perkin Part 3. Mm. And final. Yeah, well, sort of final. Sort of final. <laughs> <laughs> right, well, we left Paul Perkin on the Scottish coast. Miserable. <laughs> mm. But where was he to go? The Cuckoo, the ship that James had put at his disposal, ploughed its way south after it left Scotland, escorted by two pirate ships. And I've just got visions of you know, the whole pirate ship look. <laughs> yeah, but pirate ships. I don't know where they came from, but it's uh, yeah, the book I read said it was pirate ships. Yeah, because we haven't mentioned pirates before. Pirate yeah, mercenaries, I mean, maybe, so that they've hired them? Possibly. I mean, there's enough pirates in the channel. Otherwise, they're being chased. <laughs> The Perkins saga had been going on for six years, and I should imagine that Henry's pretty fed up with it. In the summer of 1497, Perkin was back in Ireland, and it may be that they pulled into Ireland because Catherine was having another baby. Another? Possibly? Another, if she'd already had one. (laughs) And indeed, if she ever had one. We don't know. (laughs) No, we don't know. We won't have a special sound for that. We can find something. He didn't pick a very good moment to arrive. Ireland was in the grip of a famine, and Henry had issued pardons to all Irishmen for their parts in Perkins' campaign, apart from two. Atwater, the twice the, mayor of Cork. <laughs> I was going to say, the mayor. <laughs> and a man called Barry, who we know nothing, I know nothing about. And that meant that few people wanted anything to do with Perkin. The mayor of Waterford, who obviously had no reason to look favourably on Perkin, what with him having besieged them, right. wrote to Henry immediately. In fact, he wrote on August the 1st, and the letter arrived in Woodstock on the 5th. That's pretty good going, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. That's, I don't, I'm not sure you get that now. And Henry told the mayor to try and capture Perkin. He offered a thousand marks for anyone who caught him. So now Perkin's got a bounty on his head. Not only was the mayor of Waterford, but also Desmond and Kildare, Perkin's former mm, allies, also gave chase. Okay. But they missed him. Atwood smuggled Perkin, Catherine, and the child, children, stroke no children, out of Cork and onto an island near Kinsale. And waiting there were Spanish ships, presumably organised by Ayala. Piedra de Ayala. That's the Spanish ambassador to Scotland. That's the one to Scotland, yeah. But Perkin was not going to Spain. But I'm not sure how he explained this to the Spanish captain. I mean, because Ayala would have commandeered the ships for the purpose of getting him to Spain. That was the whole point of the exercise. Yeah. That's what Ferdinand and Isabella wanted. And I don't know how Perkin got away with saying, just drop me off at Cornwall, would you? (laughs) (laughs) That was the last thing that Ferdinand and Isabella wanted, because they didn't want to antagonise Henry or to jeopardise his position on the throne, what with the marriage negotiations going on between Arthur and Catherine. But anyway... None of this makes sense to me. Nothing makes sense to me. <laughs> I've actually been taking notes the last couple of episodes because this is getting spread out and I'm I'm confused. Like why? That was part of the bidding war that Spain wanted to take Perkin. Yeah, but then he just ends up going to Cornwall. Yes. Well, that must have been something between him and the captain because as far as we know, Ayala had intended him to go to Spain. Yeah. James had told the original captain on the cuckoo to take Perkin to England. 
Now, whether he just meant drop him off at the nearest point because I'm fed up, but I'm standing any longer, (laughs) or whether this was a ploy because James and Perkin were still running this thing together. So the idea was that James would invade England from the north and Perkin would invade from Cornwall. Yes. I mean, that's a possibility. I mean, all the signs that we saw showed two extremely tense people who'd just fallen out. Yes. But was that a disguise? Oh, yeah. And they're really working together. You can't trust anybody in history, can you? Not at all. Perkin wanted to go to Perkin. uh, Perkin? (laughs) Perkin wanted to go to Cornwall because he'd heard that the Cornishmen were rebelling, led by Thomas Flamank and Michael Joseph Apgoff. And they will get their own episode, and we'll cover the Cornish uprising in detail. They were incensed by the heavy taxes that Henry had levied to pay for the war on Scotland, because, they said with some justification, they lived nowhere near Scotland. Yes. In fact, they, they couldn't really live further away. <laughs> but it is a bit circular, because if James and Perkin hadn't invaded England, Henry wouldn't have had to raise the taxes to raise an army, and the Cornish wouldn't have been driven to rebel, and Perkin wouldn't have turned up to lend them a hand. Oh, my goodness. So, yeah. I mean, sadly for the Cornish, they were soundly defeated at Blackheath on June the 16th, before Perkin arrived. And following this humiliation and the execution of Flamank and Angoff, the Cornish rebels were looking around for a new leader. They already had Lord Audley, and he was the only noble that took any interest. Kind of interesting to find out in the Cornish episode what was in it for him. Yeah. <laughs> but now they're aiming higher. And how much higher can you get than the man who is claiming to be the rightful king of England? Okay. Makes sense from the Cornish point of view. But at the same time, you're the one that started this whole thing in the first place. <laughs> yes. Well, maybe they didn't look at it like that. Or they didn't know. Yeah. And this is the first time that he seems to be the hero of his own life. <laughs> or so I thought, <laughs> when I read read the Anne Rowe book, I thought, but he seemed to be answering the call of the Cornish. So he's no longer at the beck and call of the French, the Flemish, or the Scottish princes. However, there's a rather grimmer picture of Perkin, having Taylor by his side coercing him into carrying on when Perkin himself would rather have packed the whole thing in and lived quietly. It sounds like he's, his... he'd rather do that the entire time. He's just too weak to say enough. Yes, I don't know what would happen to him if he did say enough. We're basing this on the theory that Taylor and Atwater, twice Mary Cork, <laughs> did actually take him aside and brainwash him yes. into doing the job. Back to episode one, it depends which option we go with. Yeah. Maybe Perkin and Taylor are best of chums. Maybe. And there's no coercion there. At this point, a proclamation was sent out offering Perkin a full pardon. It always seems amazing, considering how terrible the consequences are if you find yourself on the wrong side. How often pardons are given out? I mean, to Perkin. Yeah. Of all people, who's Mm. not just gone to one country, he's now gone to five, I think. Well, this will be his third invasion. Oh, jeez. Yes. (laughs) Third failed invasion, but yes. <laughs> well, he hasn't he hasn't done it yet. Oh, right. You, might, you never know. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> Arthurson, who wrote the uh, Perkin Warbeck conspiracy, says that even if Perkin might have been inclined to accept the pardon, his masters, Taylor and Atwater, wouldn't have let him. So somebody there thinks that he's just being used. Well, that's the, the man who wrote the book about the conspiracy, and that's the, ah. that's the that's the whole story about. 
Atwood and Taylor and Charles VIII all being in it together. Right. He could have just carried on to Spain and lived a quiet, comfortable life there. Unless, of course, he feared a trap, because he would have known that Ferdinand and Isabella were on friendly terms with Henry, even though the impending nuptials hadn't been announced yet. So he might have been afraid that they planned to hand him straight over to Henry. And I got the impression that's what Henry thought, too. Yes, but I don't know if they would have. I don't... Well, their plan was to hold on to him. Yeah. On the journey from Ireland to Cornwall, the ship carrying Perkin was intercepted by the English fleet. I don't know how big this fleet is, whether it's a fleet or a fleetette or a fleetissimo, I don't know. The English captain told the Spaniards that they should take into account the friendship between the two countries, and if they had Perkin on board, they should hand him over. But the Spanish crew denied any knowledge of the man, although in fact, he was hiding in a barrel. In a barrel? It's, yep. Wow. Dignified. (laughs) (laughs) But it is possible that the Spaniards thought they were telling the truth, because as far as they were concerned, they were carrying the Duke of York. Right. They might have thought, well, who is this Warbeck character? Right. Although they might well have thought it was quite strange that the Duke of York suddenly jumped into a barrel. Yes. Anyway, in 1497, Perkin invaded England again. Again. (laughs) He landed in Cornwall near Land's End with about 80 Irishmen. An Irishman, sadly, seemed to be the equivalent of the Norwegian companion in the saga thing, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> They're very much expendable extras. <laughs> They're the red shirts of Star Trek, as Jimmy would yes. say. <laughs> now, Perkin was presumably surrounded by people who couldn't understand a word he was saying, because the Irish spoke Irish, the Cornish spoke Cornish. But that wasn't unusual for an army. I should imagine that Henry had the same problem with his army. Well, here we go again. At the same time that Perkin jumped ashore, Londoners were struck down by some sort of sickness. And the dates tally with... It's syphilis again! Oh, no! <laughs> anyway, more of that in its own episode. We need a cool name for syphilis. Totalis Rankium ended up calling smallpox the evil bubble wrap disease. Yeah, go on then, you choose one. I don't want to choose one. Hmm. <laughs> That's going to take a while. <laughs> yes. <laughs> We've put a proviso on the syphilis one saying it's not suitable for children. We don't want to have to do the same same for this episode as well. Very true. (laughs) The king had been unprepared for the previous Cornish uh, rebellion. (laughs) Sorry, I just came up with one. The private parts pestilence. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's not too bad. Uh, the king had been unprepared for the previous Cornish rebellion, but now he had been in touch with the local gentry and paid their retinues himself, and had established a postal system from Woodstock to Exeter. So he had detailed information about Perkins' whereabouts and plans. I mean, you have to say this for Henry, he's, he's always really on it, isn't he? Yes, he is. Very fast. Mm. Almost like he knows things beforehand. Yeah. Well, I th- I've got a feeling it was Edward the Fourth who set up this post system across the country with you know with post horses. I vaguely remember him starting something yeah. about that, but I don't know if it crossed the whole country or it was just the no. main areas. Just wherever. the useful bits. Yeah. Yeah. Henry seems to make good use of it. Perkin gathered people together in Penzance, and then they captured St Michael's Mount. Twenty-four years after John de Vere had been besieged there. And Perkin left Catherine and the Sprogs there, given that they were Sprogs. What is a Sprog? Oh, don't you know? It's a, ch- a child. Oh, mm-hmm. really? 
You don't have sprogs. Okay. Wherever he went, men flocked to him, which made a nice change after the Scottish War fiasco. Yes. When Henry heard that Perkin was in Cornwall, he ordered the Sheriff of Cornwall to mobilise men and get him. The Sheriff raised apparently 20,000 men, but... From where? Yeah, you always have to take these numbers with you know, a dumper <laughs> truck full of salt, don't you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, Henry must have thought that it was going to be like shooting fish in a barrel. But unfortunately, when they came across Perkin, he was holed up in Castle Cannock, an ancient hill fort. And this had spiritual associations for Cornish men. The sheriff's, sheriff's, oh, I guess this is going to be impossible to say, sheriff's soldiers refused to storm it. In fact, they went home. <laughs> wow. This is a farce. This is another Monty Python farce. <laughs> I think all history's a farce, isn't it? <laughs> when you get down deep enough. Perkin kept going east. He soon crossed the River Tamar into Devon and carried on across Dartmoor. It's hound of the Baskerville country. Yes, yes, and beautiful. Oh, Dartmoor Very. ponies. Mm. <laughs> That's what I love about Dartmoor. And the prison. <laughs> I don't think of the prison. I only think of the ponies. <laughs> we broke down just outside the prison. Oh, creepy. Mm. It's a very, very creepy. It's a very prison-y prison. I mean, it looks like, if you imagine a prison, Yeah. that's but, what Dartmoor looks like. But an, a medieval prison or a modern prison? Medieval. Ooh. Yeah. I wouldn't want to be there. No. I should be very law-abiding so I don't have to go. Me too. Like Henry travelling through Wales on his way to Bosworth, Perkin insisted that his soldiers paid for everything they took. I suppose he's done this twice, because the first time the army were going to go and pillage in Kent, and then the second time he went with James, who certainly didn't pay for everything he took. Yeah. Even teeth. <laughs> so now he's probably learned his lesson and thought, right, this is, this is the way to do it. This is the way to win hearts and minds. Wow. Yeah. It feels like mm -hmm. somebody who trips in the same spot every time, and after, you know, the 50th time, he finally goes, you know what? We shouldn't step there. <laughs> Yeah. Well, now the Devon men flocked to him. The Sheriff of Devon was ordered by Henry to stop Perkin reaching Exeter, but he couldn't find anyone willing to fight. Outside the fortified city of Exeter, Perkin erected his standard, which was the White Rose, the Red Lion, and the Escaping Child. Which is an interesting one. Yeah. Mm. I think it's sort of hammering the point home, isn't it? This yeah. is who I am. Yes. Proclamations were sent out around the area offering a pardon and a thousand marks to anyone who caught Perkin. Oh, okay. I was I thought this was going to be a Perkin one and it, it would be another 2,000 words long. He has got a proclamation. <laughs> it is coming up. But this is, no, this is from the nobles that Henry sent to converge right. on Exeter. Henry was apparently playing it cool. In fact, he repeatedly said, he can't hurt me. He wouldn't know how. Really? That is so the opposite of his express mind. But the fact that he brought in extra troops to guard the Tower of London <laughs> showed that he was not taking any chances. <laughs> okay. He also instructed various noblemen to start raising troops. At some point, Perkin moved his family from St. Michael's Mount to St. Burian, where they could claim sanctuary. Sanctuary is where you go if you're giving up. Well, that's for the wife and possible children. That's not for him. Uh. He's still outside Exeter, okay, waving his flag about. But we don't know for sure that he has children. Are there any records of the children entering or nothing? We're just assuming. Where I've we... read two entirely different stories. Anne Rowe mentioned a, a son in Scotland okay. called Richard. 
And then I think it's pure speculation that he might have pulled into Ireland because Catherine might have been expecting another one. Okay. If there'd been a plan for Perkin and James to strike at the same time, dividing Henry's forces, it didn't work. Perkin's stopover in Ireland meant that James had already raided a month earlier. <laughs> Surprise! <laughs> yes. I, I don't know what the communications between them would be like. Non-existent. I'm slow, I should imagine. <laughs> but it is interesting that when Perkin left Scotland, he seemed to sort of have his tail between his legs and seemed to be at loggerhead with James, but we just don't know. I mean, if there was a two-pronged attack planned, they might have planned it beforehand. But how do you get the dates wrong if it's been planned beforehand? Well, I suppose James wouldn't have known. They might, he might have said, right, you go to Cornwall. I'll give you such and such number of days to get to Cornwall and then I'll move in. And then it took longer. And then, but then he moved into, he went into Ireland okay. for reasons we can't be certain of. At Exeter, Perkins' proclamation was shouted to the city walls. And we don't know if it was all 2,000 words of it or whether, whether they had a little word with them and said, please. <laughs> Francis Bacon said that Perkin promised to make them another London if they would be the first town to acknowledge him. But Exeter was having none of it. They mocked him and closed the gates. It is not that they closed the gates by now anyway. <laughs> Exeter had let the Cornish through on their way to London during the last uprising a few months previously. So maybe... Maybe they're proving their loyalty to Henry. Okay. And also the Earl of Devon, William Courtney, was and always had been a staunch Lancastrian. And several of the local gentry converged on Exeter with their men. Henry was still in Woodstock, but he sent the lovely Richard Empson down to Exeter with a thousand marks, with instructions to harry the Cornish and to burn Perkin's ships. I think Empson would enjoy that, wouldn't oh, he? Oh, yes. Mm. Henry wasn't risking escape this time. We have to remember that Perkin had precisely no military experience, and now several thousand Cornishmen and Irishmen were looking to him to know what he was doing. Oh my gosh, did he not bring any sort of general that had some sort of knowledge? There were a couple of, uh, well, they were more naval, I think. They were part of Edward IV's navy Okay. that were, were close to Perkin. But doesn't really help for, yeah. Perkin lined up in battle formation outside the city. So at least he knew what a battle formation was. Somebody did. We hope. <laughs> now I'm picturing him shaping them into a heart. <laughs> Exeter was well guarded with heavy guns. Perkin had no sieging equipment, no guns, no armour, no experienced soldiers. Oh my gosh, how did he think he was going to get anywhere? This is going to be a Force slaughter. of numbers, I suppose. He tried to burn down the north gate, but bizarrely, the city folk counteracted by lighting an even bigger fire on their side. What? I know, it was literally fighting fire with fire. <laughs> yeah. I suppose they thought once they got through, they'd just be faced with a massive great fire. But then again, you are burning a gate there. Yeah. After several attempts, Perkin gave up for the day. The following day, however, his men broke through the east gate and flooded down the high street. But they were no match for the artillery and they soon fled and Perkins sent a request for a truce to the Earl of Devon, in which he asked to be allowed to depart and to put them to no more trouble. Really? Yes, it seems odd. Can, can we go now, please? The Earl of Devon was William Courtney, and he was married to Catherine of York. Oh, yes. Who was, yeah, who was the Queen's sister, and therefore yes. also Richard, Duke of York's sister. Yes. When the attack on the city failed, Courtney gave the rebels six hours' grace to get away unhindered. What? 
He later told Henry that this was because Henry had specifically said he wanted Perkin taken alive and Courtney was afraid that he'd be killed if they chased him. Uh, but maybe, <laughs> maybe he was unsure of Perkin's identity. Did Henry accept uh, that reasoning? Well, I was thinking that Courtney's wife may have feared that her husband was actually firing on her own brother. Ah. And if there was any chance of that, she might have said, Don't, don't do it. Please don't, yeah. Finally, Henry moved from Woodstock, and by September the 30th, he had reached the beautiful city of Wales. Lovely cathedral in Wales. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Perkin was heading for Taunton, in God's own county of Somerset. And on entering Taunton, Taylor and his friends claimed to have a papal bull affirming Perkin was the true son of Edward IV. And that was to try and stem the tide of deserters. They also claimed to be about to start coining money, so everyone would be paid. So it's it's the free beer all over again, isn't it? <laughs> oh my gosh. Is there even a mint nearby for them to be able to coin the money? I've never spotted one in Taunton. <laughs> <laughs> Perkins' men were disheartened. They'd lost many men in Exeter, and they could feel everything closing in on them. Mm-hmm. Henry sent messages promising them pardons, as we said, and they were further disheartened by the fact that the bread they were eating and the beer they were drinking, you know, free or not, were killing them. What? Were they poisoned? Mm-hmm. Well, I thought of ergot, you know, the fungal disease. Yes, for rye bread. Mm. I don't know if it kills you. Well, but it doesn't now. Maybe it did then. But does... And maybe they were being poisoned, but... Do they make beer out of rye? Is it only rye? No, I thought it was barley. Well, that was just my thought. I just heard that they were dying. Mm. Mm. Maybe they were being poisoned. Matter. Perkin captured Taunton Castle, but it was barely more than a fortified house. Which, which is odd, really, because... There is a Taunton Castle now, and it's it's a hell of a lot bigger than a fortified house. That's where the museum is. Hmm. But the men were deserting and heading home in their droves. Giles... You were going to say in their drawers. <laughs> well, that would be the poor Irish ones, because they've never seemed to be dressed adequately for war, do they? Giles, Lord Dobney, sent Perkin a challenge, telling him to set a date for the battle. Well, Perkin didn't answer immediately. He inspected his troops counted how many there were left, and at midnight, under the cover of darkness, he he sneaked away and fled for the coast. Oh my goodness. Perkins escape. Henry had known Perkin would run for it and was prepared for it. Oh, perfect. I think he's got a little reputation here, isn't he? Mm-hmm. 60 of Perkins' horsemen left Taunton at the same time as Perkin did, but he soon separated from them. Taylor got away back to France, which is nice for Really? Him. Yeah. Another group ran to London and became the group we came across before, plotting the release of Edward Plantagenet from the Tower. Yes. John Heron, Edward Skelton and Nicholas Astley stayed with Perkin, as they had since his Flanders days. They reached Southampton in two days, but no ships. Perkin had made arrangements for the ships to follow him along the coast, so they'd always be close at hand. 
Okay. I couldn't find out what had happened to the ships, whether they sailed away or whether Sir Richard Empson had actually had them burnt, as Henry had charged him. He probably took them and sold them. <laughs> and kept the money. And kept the money. Oh, no, they're mm. burnt. They're burnt. Nope, they're burnt. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this, this, this. Oh, it's just my money pouch. It, it had nothing to do with it. <laughs> Perkin changed his mind and headed for Bewley. By the 22nd, he was safely in sanctuary there. I say, on entering the sanctuary, he'd have had to sign his name in the register. But unfortunately, we don't know what name he gave. Ah, oh, darn it. And when the luggage of Perkin and his companions was checked, they only had ten crowns between them. It seems a, a cheapskate way to start a new, a new dynasty. And why was, why was their luggage checked? Is that when, when they were caught? Or did the monks themselves... Maybe it was... I don't know. Maybe it was when they were caught. But okay. yes, they, they hadn't got much money between them. No. Henry had a history of disregarding sanctuary. He'd extracted yes. Humphrey Stafford from sanctuary, stating that sanctuary didn't apply in the case of treason. Spoiler for when we do <laughs> Humphrey Stafford. We will do him. He did, however, offer Perkin a full pardon and said he'd forget everything he'd done, which is extremely magnanimous. If he meant it. Yeah, but he could, because, I mean, Lambert Simnel had been given a full pardon and then was hired. Maybe He was a little boy, though, wasn't he? I mean, he was obviously not... But was he little? I thought he was like 14, 15. I don't know. I'm going by the picture. We haven't done him yet, so we don't know. But I'm going by the picture of him sitting on someone's shoulders. Oh. And he's a little boy in there. (laughs) (laughs) He does look like like someone being taken to the fair. (laughs) Henry didn't count Perkin as a traitor by his own definition since he was foreign. Ah. His counsellors were English, and therefore fair game. And Bewley was encircled by Henry's men. Perkin was taken from the Abbey by the Mayor of Southampton, who was paid, by the way, the very large sum of £482.16 shillings and eightpence wow. for expenses. I always wonder about that. When you see that they were rewarded, it's not a round number ever. It includes the pence well, I suppose and it shillings. Might be, it might be done in marks or some some other currency, mightn't it? Oh, and then converted. Yeah, there's an awful lot of different types of money knocking around at this time, aren't there? Yeah. Money seems to have been no object at this time, which is not Henry's usual motto. No. According to Bernard André, he, he's the historian and poet in Henry VII's court. Okay. Perkin was led out trembling, jocularly hissed at by the king's servants with wonderful deridings and insults thrown at his ridiculous head. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if he had a ridiculous head. Maybe he did. And Perkin was taken back to Henry in Taunton. He dressed himself in cloth of gold, which since no one lower than a duke is allowed to wear a cloth of gold, he said to be making a point, I think. Yes. But what I wondered was, where did he get it? Because he rushed away from Taunton in the middle of the night, sneaking away from his troops. Yeah. And again, as he's running away from his own side, and yet he remembered to pack his cloth of gold outfit. Once Henry and Perkin met face to face in Taunton, Henry seems to have played down Perkin's crimes as if to make a big thing of it would give Perkin the kudos that Henry didn't really think he deserved. He did, however, rebuke him for the deaths of his followers, which is fair enough, but the only reason that Henry wasn't rebuked for the death of his followers was that he won. True. (laughs) This young man had cost Henry thousands of pounds in Scotland, in Ireland, in the West Country, and in the fees for spies. And probably a whole bunch of grey hair. Oh, yes, indeed. Some advised Henry to kill him at Bewley, 
but Perkins seems to have held quite a fascination for the king. They talked alone together. I'm not sure whether this is as we would use the word alone as as we read it today. Yeah. Just the just the two of them, because they didn't really do alone at that time, did they? Never. Perkin told Henry everything. Whether it was true or not was a different matter. Yeah. Whether he believed it or not is another matter as well. What, Henry or Perkin? Perkin. Or <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, if if we're going by that brainwash thing, he could be telling him the story that he was given that's been drummed into him, or the actual story, or a new one that he thought was true. Or one that Henry's just handed to him. Yes. So, yeah, read that. <laughs> Didn't think that. What's particularly interesting is who knew what, according to Perkins' statement. Of his counsellors who'd stayed with him as far as Bewley, Skelton and Astley believed he was the Duke, and Heron knew he wasn't. It's a bit like one person believing in Father Christmas and somebody else not. I mean, did he think, oh, I won't tell them, it'll ruin it for them? (laughs) Maximilian James IV and Perkins' father-in-law thought he was. Okay. Which is just as well, because the latter was quite scary, apparently. Margaret of Burgundy knew everything, according to Perkin, according to the confession. Charles VIII had believed, but no longer did. Perkin confessed that his name was Piers Osbeck, or whatever. Anne Rowe said that Perkin seems to have coughed up the information willingly. She said that no fees for torturers appear in the accounts, for instance. Which is nice. (laughs) However, Matthew Lewis says that Perkin's been beaten up by Henry's soldiers. And whether that was on Henry's command or whether it was soldiers being soldiers, I'm not sure. And I, I think that actually seems quite likely. After this tete-a-tete with the king, Perkin was brought before the lords and earls, and he made a formal surrender. Henry told Perkin to look around and point out the people he recognised, people who had known the Duke of York when he was a child. Perkin said he didn't recognise anyone, and he answered very quickly, apparently, barely even bothering to look around the room. But there were three people in the room, planted there by Henry, whom the real Duke of York would have known. Are we still talking about when they were alone chatting, or is this afterwards? This is when he's brought before the oh, okay. earls and, and um, his pe- well, not his peers, unless, of course, he's the Duke of York. Maybe it's oh, just God. the peers of the realm. Yeah. Thomas Grey, Marcus of Dorset, would have been York's half-brother. Mm-hmm. John, Earl of Arundel, would have been his cousin. And John Reardon would have been York's servant. And Perkins said he didn't recognise any of these people and barely bothered to look. Oh. Perkin further volunteered the information, if volunteered is the right word, when he's obviously been primed, that he was not the Duke of York and that for two years he'd been desperate to escape from these troubles, but fortune had not allowed it. And that would have been around the time of his marriage, which we speculated might have sort of pushed him over into thinking, this is getting too heavy. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And what must Maximilian and James IV have thought when they heard this confession? Or Astley and Skelton, they'd stuck by him. They may have comforted themselves with the thought that the confession might have been wrung out of him. The next act of penance for Perkin was to confess to his wife, Catherine. Ooh, oh, that would suck. If Perkin had a fascination for Henry, so too did Perkin's wife. And by all accounts, she was very beautiful, and Henry couldn't wait to see her. He really seems to have had a thing for her, both before and after he saw her. She was a long time reaching Henry because she was in full mourning and was therefore shuttered away. But whether this mourning was for a marriage 
that had now turned out to be a fiasco, or whether it's the death of the second child, or if there'd been one, or miscarriage, or we don't know, but the king brought her a full mourning outfit. He provided everything for her, even down to what's now euphemistically called feminine hygiene products, but, but in those days were called night kerchers. So it's really funny what comes down through history, isn't it? Two things. Henry Provided does, Ca Catherine. Yeah, <laughs> with feminine hygiene products. Not just that, the fact that he's spending any money whatsoever for somebody who does not want to spend money. And there's even one mention that um, Elizabeth of York was known to remove jewels off of certain things to give back to the jewel house so that they didn't have to pay for it. They'd, they'd rent some of her jewels instead of owning them. Mm. Just because well, he was cheap. Well, sure. Yeah, well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how extravagant this morning outfit was, but he paid for it. Wow. Unfortunately, we don't know what was said when Perkin met Catherine. The only record of it is by Bernard Andre, and he was a poet as much as a historian, and he wasn't there. And it was written for Henry rather than a true rendition, and stresses this most kind king. Catherine was apparently soaked through with tears, and in Andre's version, she berates Perkin and con contrasts him with the most powerful and merciful king who has promised not to desert me. But that was Andre's story, and it's a lovely story of a concerned king watching paternally over these two young people in their times of sorrow. Yeah. But there could be a different way of looking at it. <laughs> I think so. I mean, for a start, it seems very likely that it was not Perkin who wrote the confession, but Henry, as we've looked at. Yorkist said it, said it was a fabrication and signed under duress and covers up the real story. I mean, it's always worth asking who benefits from any story, isn't it? Yes. I will put the confession in full on our website. It's the version that says that Perkin arrived in Ireland and was scooped up by Atwater and friends who recreated him as the Duke of York. Andre presents the whole thing as a sign of Henry's greatness, but possibly looked at from a modern perspective, the scene looks less benevolent. Henry had lured Perkin out of sanctuary on the pretext of mercy, and Henry's men had, in the words of Andre, mockingly beat him black and blue. Mockingly. That makes mm. it sound jaunty. Uh, it, it isn't. <laughs> but... I thought it was interesting that you got the word black and blue there from yes a, script, a, a text of that time. Yes. It's funny the kinds of things that you find that you wonder about. Hmm. Perkin was then forced to read the confession in front of his wife, which he may have been doing to ensure his safety, or indeed hers, mm -hmm. the children's, while Henry looked on. It's all a little bit nasty, isn't it? Yes. But why would Perkin have signed the confession if it were not true? Well, Henry had his wife and children. Yes. That's always a consideration. Perkin had been beaten up, possibly. Yeah. And depending on who he was, he may have thought it expedient to sign. Because imagine, for instance, that he really was the Duke of York. Henry has said, don't worry, I won't accuse you of treason because you're a foreigner. And he may have felt that in the circumstances, it was best for him to go along with this persona that Henry had presented him with, the foreigner, rather than... Rather than a traitor. Yeah. Because if it turned out he was English, he but was he dead. couldn't prove he was the Duke of York, yeah, it's difficult. Mm -hmm. Matthew Lewis, in his book, The Survival of the Princes of the Tower, speculates that Sir Edward Brampton may have had a hand in the confession. We came across him in the first instalment of the trilogy. He was the Portuguese adventurer. Oh, yes. Okay. Uh, yeah. If you remember back that far. 
He suggests that if Brampton had been the one who secreted Richard of York out of the tower, which which, uh, Lewis seems to think, and over to the continent, he may have seen that the lad was completely unsuited for either kingship or any sort of martial arts. And he may have just decided to dump him and go to Henry to warn him that the boy was still alive, but no threat on account of being useless. This would have got Brampton back into the heart of court where he liked to be. Hmm, I don't know. No, it's, I was a bit dubious about that. But he goes on that Brampton had trade links with Tournai and may have known the Osbeck family. He may have known that they lost a son to the plague, which is the very illness from which Perkin, in his confession, says he took five months to recover from. Okay. These these people all existed because Henry's men had sought them out and they remembered Piers Osbeck. So maybe the Duke of York was being asked to take on the persona of a dead Flemish boy. Oh, boy with proper history and family, so all the facts would be verifiable, except that in this version of the story, the boy took five months to recover from the plague, whereas the original boy might have succumbed like his siblings. Mm. So we've got yet another option for for episode one, really. Oh my goodness. In 1496, Charles VIII had offered to send Perkins' parents to England, because Tournai was was French ruled at this time. Henry refused. Why? Because if he had them, he could have paraded them around like he had with young Edward Plantagenet. I mean, for start, he refused because he didn't trust the French. I mean, they wanted to, when they wanted his friendship and to stop him joining the Holy League, Perkin was the boatman's son. But when they wanted to put pressure on him, Perkin was the Duke of York. <laughs> <laughs> so after Perkin's capture, Charles VIII boasted that he kept Henry in perpetual state of fear by dangling the threat of Perkin over him. I don't know why he said that, because he hadn't got Perkin. Yeah, I was going to say. Apart from right at the beginning. Yeah, and then he just sort of abandoned the whole thing because he was going against Maximilian. Unless he means he really did set Perkin up initially. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Mm. (laughs) I don't know if it's true, but it makes sense. (laughs) I think that's the first first time you said that makes sense about this entire thing. (laughs) It is really, really interesting. I'm not saying it's not. It's just <laughs> trying to keep straight because everybody has a different opinion and we don't know the truth. So everything is sort of the same plausibility level. Yeah. And all the books I read were following their own conspiracy theory. Really, yes. Well, conspiracy <laughs> theory. Yes, precisely. <laughs> but maybe Henry wasn't keen on the parents being sent over because they could have told anyone who'd listen. it wasn't Our boy him. died of plague. Yeah. Right. Okay. That still doesn't mean that they actually was his son. It was just too much of a risk. Yeah. Mm. Doesn't give you an answer, then. Damn. No, it doesn't (laughs) give you an answer. (laughs) No, it's just, it's like a spider diagram that just keeps growing and growing and growing. (laughs) (laughs) You need a massive piece of paper. (laughs) But where does Margaret of Burgundy fit into all this? Stamping her feet. (laughs) Yes. Both Virgil and Andre said that Margaret had been grooming Perkin before he turned up in Ireland. That's the that's the line they took. Okay. They dismissed the idea that he had been spotted on the docks and trained in Ireland. And if this is the case, why would Perkin make up such an elaborate story in the confession? If he did. If he did. It would have been to protect Margaret, but he'd already dobbed her right in it by, t- by saying that she knew Do everything. everything. Yeah. Mm. If it was him that wrote it. But if not... I can imagine Henry taking a lot of pleasure writing that bit. It would have been vital for Henry to take Perkin alive, because if he'd been killed, the uncertainty would still be there. 
And Henry might be seen by some Yorkist supporters as the man who kills someone who might just just have been Edward the Fourth's son. Oh, so really? he needed he needed that confession, but did he need it enough to write it himself? Well, I think so. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. So, I mean, what was the confession for? It was, it was to put a stop once and for all to the rumours about Richard, Duke of York, and it didn't need to tell the whole story. It really just needed to do that. Yeah. Anyway, we left Perkin telling Catherine that she'd married a fraud. And this must have been a situation that Perkin and Catherine might have discussed beforehand. And he may have said to her, he might have to confess to save his life and hers, and she shouldn't believe a word of it. But we don't know. And Catherine was sent to be lady-in-waiting to Henry's queen as Elizabeth of York. That could be a bit risky. Yes, well, if she still believed in Perkin, she may have thought that they were sisters-in-law. Oh, true. But still. I can't work out why nobody ever thought to ask Elizabeth, if anyone would know. I assumed that he didn't want to take the risk. Now, I'm not, having built this whole thing up, I didn't really want Elizabeth saying, Oh, hang on, now you come to mention it. Yeah. In November 1496, Perkin was kept in custody while the court was in Exeter. But it was for his own protection. It was to stop the Cornish from killing him. So again, we see him being protected from his own side, because they now knew that he had admitted to being a fraud. Right. And they were not happy. On the journey back to London, crowds lined the street, not just to see the king, but to see this low-born boy who dared to try to be king. At some point, Perkin wrote a letter to his mother. And in the letter, it's very sweet. He like to Mrs. Osbeck? Yes. Okay. Yes. Not to... Um, <laughs> Elizabeth Woodville. <laughs> Elizabeth Woodville, yes. Well, she's already dead by this point, but yeah. In the letter, he asks after family members, comments on places they both knew. He says, I now found myself in such trouble that if you are not in this hour my good mother, I am compelled to be in great danger and inconvenience because of the name which, at their instance, I have taken upon myself and the enterprise which I have carried out. He ends with a PS, and it's a PS that every parent knows only too well. And this one has quite a good reason. Mother, I pray you to send me a little money so that my guards may be kinder to me for my giving them something. So there we are, a little glimpse of the real Perkin. And I expect you can guess what I'm going to say next. Somebody else might have written It's quite possible that Perkins did not write this letter. Several of the facts about his family are wrong. But that may be just because he hadn't been home for a long time. He may have misremembered events. Or he may have received news from somebody who didn't know all the facts. So, But the letter was circulated, so lots of people could see it. And, you know, it's a really convincing bit of propaganda. Yeah. A, a, a seemingly private me. letter yes. to his mum asking for money. <sighs> I don't know whether this whole thing just makes you see conspiracies everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> you just pick, you just think, oh, I bet, I bet he didn't do that. I bet he didn't write that. I bet she didn't say that. I mean, it's mm-hmm. just... When he got to London, he was jeered at, both by the common people and by the aldermen who had come out to welcome Henry. In fact, he was made to ride through the streets several times with people shouting abuse at him. He wasn't constrained in any way, and apparently he'd quite um, dignified about it. I wonder if this is like what you see in a lot of the movies that is in set in this time period, where people are throwing rotten food at them. Hmm. 
or stones. Yeah, I don't know what. Don't know why they always have rotten food to hand. With these people. I don't know because if you're, <laughs> I don't carry rotten food about with me. No, especially if famine's happening somewhere, you eat everything you possibly can, mm. or it goes to your pigs to make it so you can eat the pigs. Yep. I mean, if we've got rotten food, we've got chickens and a compost heap. We don't carry it about on the, on the off chance we might need to throw it at somebody. Yeah. Everyone at home and abroad assumed that Henry intended to execute Perkin. Because to treat Perkin kindly might imply that Henry was too, in two minds as to who he was. And you think, why didn't he kill him? He had promised him mercy if he came out of sanctuary. I mean, that seems to be the only... I'm thinking we're we're back to the same possible thought processes with Lambert. If he kept him around, nobody else could claim to be Richard, Duke of York as well, because it had already happened once. Maybe it was an additional insurance policy. I, I suppose so, except he'd already said, I'm not the Duke of yeah, York. But he's, Henry's got such a convoluted way of thinking sometimes. He really does. It, does he, or is it, is it historians that have a convoluted way of thinking? Possibly both. <laughs> It just yes. compounds. <laughs> <laughs> On September 30th, 1497, a peace treaty was signed between England and Scotland. It was to last seven years, and at the culmination of this, James IV married Margaret. <laughs> he never got his Spanish princess. He had to make do with the one that they kept fobbing him off with. <laughs> Poor Margaret. Yes, I know. And she was only six when it started. However, James IV included a clause stating that he wouldn't harbour rebels unless he'd given them safe conduct. And he had given Perkin and his followers safe conduct. Oh, so it excludes them anyway. Yes, and it does make you wonder whether James and Perkin really had fallen out, mm. or whether they were still working together. Not that it makes a lot of use now, but... Over the water, Maximilian, Philip and Margaret were still plotting. They even offered a reward for the assassination of Henry. Margaret's oh, reaction to Perkin's arrest isn't known, but in a letter to his son, Philip, Maximilian told him to send the president of Flanders to England to plead for Perkin's life and to arrange for him to be sent back to Maximilian, who in turn would ensure that Perkin never made a move on the English throne again. Right. He has got that document. <laughs> <laughs> I just have to kill him now, and now yes. it's all mine. Mm. Ooh, I wonder... I'm now looking at the future. When Perkins gone, does Maximilian try? Maximilian try to claim the English. I wonder. Yes, and, and how valid this thing is? Not because it was signed by the Duke of York, and now the right. Duke of York has said, "I'm not the Duke of York." So, right? Yeah, probably not worth the paper it was written on. No. Um, what of Catherine? Well, she and her husband were put on display at a reception of oh, the Scottish that ambassador. Poor they were still officially married. How can they be officially married if if he's now admitted he's not that person who... Well, people make a lot of comment on the fact that Henry wouldn't let them sleep together. And that wouldn't even have been an issue if unless they were officially married, would right. it? But also, given that Perkins slept with two guards in his bed, one on either side of him, you know, it's quite crowded in that bed already without Ew. Catherine climbing in. People did sleep together a lot, didn't they? Yeah. There's a lot of cases that you find out that beds meant the mattress, not the full bed the way we think about it. Hmm. And there were often only two beds in most families, regardless of the fact that they had like eight or nine children, because uh, everybody slept in the same beds. Yeah, that went on till Victorian times. I think Henry was stopping that dynasty thing again, which yep. implies why would you bother if he already had a child? 
But the church saw a separation of a couple from the marriage bed, apart from legitimate reasons, as a form of divorce anyway. But commentators in the court said that Perkin and Catherine were obviously still in love. Which is nice. Sort of. Well, yeah. Might have been easier for her if she could just move on. Mm. The little boy, if he existed, would have been over a year. So it's not certain, but it seems that, you know, Henry probably had him sent far away. I don't mean in a sort of inverted commas. Sent him far away. All of a sudden, we're back to who killed the princes in the tower. (laughs) Oh, Henry wouldn't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Perkin may have been a prisoner, but again, he wasn't constrained. He had the freedom of the Palace of Sheen. He could even go riding. Despite this, Maximilian was convinced he was living in a miserable cell in the tower. Maximilian just writes his own stories all the time, doesn't he? I'm looking forward to him. At one point, Perkins seems to have given an organ recital. And we know this from the reaction of Edward Skelton, poet, musician, Arthur's tutor, not the Skelton that followed Perkins to Bewley. Uh, We are actually going to do an episode on him. He wrote a poem vilifying Perkins and his music, describing his playing as he fumbleth with his fingers with an ugly good noise. It seemeth the sobbing of an old sow. How can you be an ugly good noise? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it meant loud. Loud, right. Mm. When I read that, I thought we've got to do an episode on him. <laughs> By February 1498, Henry took Perkin on progress with him. And rather callously, Henry took him to Kent, the scene of his disastrous attempted invasion. It would be fascinating to know how these two men got on. June the 9th, 1498, was a Sunday. And at midnight, as we heard in Edward Earl of Warwick's episode, Perkin climbed out of the window and ran away. Well, now we might be able to find out why. He's very, very good at running. He does like to run. (laughs) It was suggested by a Venetian source that Henry had arranged Perkin's escape as an excuse to imprison or kill him. Well, there doesn't seem to be much proof of that, except that it's the sort of thing that a medieval king would do. Especially if he has Empson. And Francis Bacon thought that Henry had allowed Perkins to escape all the time of his flight, Henry had him on a line, and that the king did this to pick a quarrel with him, to put him to death and be rid of him at once. Mm-hmm. Which he doesn't need to. All he has to do is say you're a traitor and execute him. Like, why does he now need to make something up? He invaded three times. <laughs> Yes, you would have thought so, unless he's still holding on to this idea that I've got to keep saying this man's a foreigner, otherwise my story breaks down. Right. Well, the ports are alerted. Henry pretended not to care again. He offered only £100 for his return. So why did Perkin do this? Well, Virgin seemed to think that Perkin was prone to self-sabotage. He was a runner away and had been all his life. He'd run away from school, he'd run away from Portugal, he'd run away from the Scottish Wars, he'd run away from Taunton. Around at this time as well, there was talk that Maximilian was getting a fleet together to sail over to England and rescue Perkin. Of two ships. <laughs> and Edward, yes. <laughs> so had Perkin heard about this and escaped to join the fleet? If that was the plan, he was to be disappointed because it was only a rumour. It's probably, it probably a fact in Maximilian's head, but it's not a fact in real life. Could Catherine have helped him escape? Her name disappears from the accounts for a year starting from this time, implying that she was being punished for something. Oh. So after this, her spending was severely constrained. She only had one servant rather than six. 
Now, this in itself doesn't necessarily mean she was responsible for her husband's escape, because Henry might have been punishing her just as a remaining representative of Perkin. Right. Or was just indirectly to punish Perkin. But he did seem to like her. He, he was seemed to be taking the what did the nasty man do to you, my dear, sort of, sort of yeah. line with the... Well, again, it's not really her choice. Women didn't have a choice in who they were married to. But no. it may have been the fact that she actually loved him, maybe, and Henry was... No. I don't know. No. Where did Perkin go? Well, the first the Burgundian version, despite Henry's conviction that Perkin would head for the ports, he actually went upriver and hid in a reed bed for a few hours. <laughs> then, overnight, <laughs> then overnight, he raced up the river to the charter house at Sheen and sought sanctuary, which was curious because that was one of Henry's favourite places. The prior, Rolf Tracy, listened to Perkin's story, but apparently it's a very inward-looking order, so they might never have heard of him. And then, after locking him up, this prior went to Henry to plead for Perkin's life. Henry relented and agreed to spare him, so soldiers were sent to pick him up. Now, this time, the king was considerably less gentle with him. Martin had beaten him up the first time, so I don't know why. Yeah, what does less gentle mean now? Well, the English version has him throwing himself at the mercy of the Carthusian priory in Sheen. The priory refuses because Henry had forbidden it, and he hands him over to the Bishop of Cambrai, then on embassy in England. Cambrai hands him over to Henry. Either way, Perkin was then exhibited in chains in the stocks, and then he was then sent to the tower. I'm assuming the dungeon part of the tower, not the royal apartments. Not the royal apartments. His conditions in the tower, it, it, it was a relatively large room, but with only one small window. He may have had some furniture. He wore prison clothes, so no more cloth of gold for him. He was fitted, though, with foot shackles and a neck and body chain of the type used on performing animals. And this was rare. Most prisoners were not chained. Hmm. Really? In my head, if you were in the tower, you were chained. I don't know why. I suppose it's whether you were an escape risk or not. Yeah. Or if Henry had a personal reason for not wanting you to be comfortable. Because mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure Edward wasn't chained, was he? You certainly don't get the impression he was chained. No, there was no mention of it. Four men were given the task of gardening. Gu gardening? <laughs> four, men were, four men were given the task of guarding him. But unbelievably, two of them were Yorkist sympathisers. What? One of them we'd come across before in Edward, Earl of Warwick's episode. Thomas Astwood. Astwood. He had been convicted of treason alongside William Stanley and only escaped death because he was so young. But he'd been pardoned on the block after the previous three men had been beheaded, so it's not surprising he still had it for Henry in later years. I mean, that would be pretty traumatic, wouldn't yeah. it? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I get the feeling that every single person in the Tudor era who had post-traumatic stress disorder. Oh, I should think so. Yeah. For all of the things that they saw. And the death of the children. Yeah. Oh gosh, the death oh. of the children. Mm. But in the room above Perkins was young Edward Plantagenet. Perkin was allowed out of his room on the 30th of July, 1498. The Bishop of Cambrai arrived with a delegation ostensibly to talk about trade, but he'd also been given instructions by Maximilian, Philip and Margaret to see how Perkin was and to try and arrange his release. And Henry himself took Cambrai to see Perkin. He was either shown to Cambrai in the Tower or at John de Vere's Castle in Headingham. So sources vary on that. I think it just depends where people think Henry was at the time. Luckily for history and for us, the Puebla was invited too. Perkin had been well rehearsed. He swore in front of Cambrai that he was not the Duke of York. Henry asked Perkin why he had deceived Maximilian and Philip. 
and Perkin evaded the question, but instead swore solemnly to God that the Duchess, Madame Margaret, knew, as well as himself did, that he was not the son of who he said he was, which sounds as if he's memorising a script. Yeah. He's not answering the question. He's, say, he's saying what he's been told to say. He'd also been beaten up again. He went on to tell Cambrai that he deceived Philip on Margaret's orders. Oh, okay. It was soon after this meeting that Margaret abandoned Perkin and wrote to Henry pledging loyalty. Why? Did she realise the game was up? Was she hurt by the Perkin had dobbed her in it? Yeah, but what benefit would she get from... She's not in England. She... Well, I'm just wondering if it's the intercursus magnus. Oh, right. Maybe Henry was now insisting that it should be implemented. Right. And therefore she would lose some of her estates. Or was this a means to save Perkin? Oh. You're trying to get into Henry's good book, so then she could say, oh, and by the way... Please don't kill him. Yeah. De Puebla was shocked at Perkin's appearance and didn't think he could live for much longer. He had been disfigurado, in other words, punched repeatedly in the face. Ooh. Possibly so that any resemblance to Richard would be eradicated. Ooh. Mm. A short while later, Margaret of Burgundy wrote to Henry. We hear this from de Puebla because the letter doesn't survive. She, and get this, she apologised for what she'd done and asked him to receive her into his obedience. And this presumably stems from the report she'd heard of the state of Perkin. She might have swallowed her pride and put aside her hatred for Henry just to save him. We don't know. Mm. But this, this wrong-footed Henry for a while, and he called a council to thrash out what response to give her. He'd tried to isolate Margaret with trade embargoes, and that hadn't worked. So he used what was left to him. He wrote back saying that if she would back off and stop claiming that Perkin was the Duke of York, he wouldn't kill him. Probably. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> so, problem over. And Henry went to spend the rest of the summer with John de Vere and his bear dancing in its chains. Aww. bear. Well, he had a bear that was made to dance. It's not quite the same as a dancing bear, is it? No, not at all. A year after his outing to see the Bishop of Cambrai, Perkin started plotting. Oh, of course he did. <laughs> sort of. But we know all this because knowing that there'd be a lot more to talk about in Perkin's episode, I covered this in depth in young Edward's episode. So we're back with the introduction of John Astwood to young Edward. Now, now I have a special friend. Yes. We're back with the aglets being used to clandestine tokens. And we're back with the dream of the bear rattling its chains in the middle of the road. Yeah. At this stage, the plan was to break young Edward out of the jail. Later, it was decided to include Perkin, maybe at Astwood's insistence, because he's he'd got to know him pretty well by then. In the spring of 1499, the pretender that everyone forgets, Ralph Wilford, announced that he was the Earl of Warwick. 
Henry thought, I'm not going through this again, and hanged him. (laughs) But little pangs of paranoia started niggling away at him. How would he ever be safe if Perkin and young Edward were still alive? I think so was Lambert Simnel, but no one's worrying about him, are they? No. On August the 2nd, the conspiracies made their plans to break out of the tower. They would set fire to it to create a diversion, and then they would take the money and the jewels housed in the tower, kill the king, and make young Edward king. Bish bash bosh. On August the 4th, Claymond bailed out, and the last time he wondered if he'd been Henry Stooge, who, looking into young Edward's trusting eyes, thought, no, I can't do this. Yeah. He told Edward that Perkin had grasped on them all, and maybe this was a part of a plot by Henry to introduce distrust between Edward and Perkin, who were sort of becoming friends through this hole in the floor. On August the 4th, Perkin was given a file and a hammer so that he could break his chains. He was also given a long white thread, which he could hang out of his window and so send and receive letters that way. He was given a code book and a fake shackle so that when he had bashed off the real one, he could put a fake one on and the guards would be none the wiser. So it's all real sort of boy's own espionage Mm -hmm. stuff. By this time, there seemed to be a lot of plotters and this is easily potential for this to be quite a leaky vessel, (laughs) this, this conspiracy. And they don't, they just don't get on with it. The longer they leave it, the more likely they're to be rumbled, but they're still yeah. waiting for this propitious moment because it's all in the stars, obviously. Oh, gosh. Are you kidding me? They're using astrology to decide when to go? They used astrology for everything, didn't they? Uh. As we will find in a minute. Young Ed would seem happy to go along with what people said, but from looking at it from his point of view, he'd been pretty much ignored in the tower since he was 10, and now suddenly there's people coming in and out all the time. He's got a friend downstairs, and people are interested in him at last. In fact, we hear of young Edward calling down through a hole in the floor, telling Perkin to be of good cheer, because obviously if he's shackled and he keeps being beaten up, he's apparently depression had kicked in. Yeah, so there's two central figures of this plot. One's too innocent and one's too depressed to take too much notice. These plotters seem to have no trouble getting in and out of the tower, laden down with files and hammers and false shackles. I've been wondering, how are they getting in and out? But I guess maybe they don't search people yet? It's almost, almost... As if someone wanted to incriminate them. Oh, jeez. Hmm. Someone who was getting a bit antsy about that while these two men lived, he'd never be safe. Mm-hmm. Someone who was getting pressure from Spain to clear away any potential threats to his throne. And somebody that has somebody else that's already so skilled at getting people escaped out of prison so they could find them. True. And someone who was just heading off to the Isle of Wight. And that's a secret. Nobody knows he's going to the Isle of Wight. <laughs> Now that's not to say Astwood and Co. weren't sincere, because it's hard to tell whether Henry heard of Astwood's plot and added to it, or whether Henry instigated it and Astwood and Co. joined, thinking it to be real. Either way, they're in big trouble. And this is the point where Ayala reported that Henry aged 20 years and two weeks. He became, this is Henry, became heavily reliant on astrologers and fortune tellers. Okay. The king's astrologer was William Parron, and we last met him travelling to Tournai on a fact-finding mission and panicking that if he didn't find any facts that Henry would execute him. He was one of those two. Okay. He wrote a book that was for the king's eyes only. It was called De Astrorum v. Fatali, and covered the necessity to chastise the just and the innocent should the circumstances call for it. Fate sometimes demanded it, apparently. Quote, the law and causation and justice say they must be beheaded, or hanged, or burnt, or drowned, some through ruin, some through fate, some by the sword, some snuffed out by various diseases, 
unless the fate of the stars at their birth dictates that by God's might it shall be otherwise. In other words, if Henry can kill Edward and Perkin, that shows that God has allowed it, and so there'd be no need for self-recrimination. Oh my goodness. Mm. See, Edward's stars were rubbish, Perrin said, and that must be true because it was demonstrated by how rubbish Edward's life had been. Okay. Duke of York's stars were even worse, and that was shown by the fact he'd been dead for 14 years. <laughs> so, But it's interesting that Henry is seeking reassurance that it's okay to kill people who are innocent. That's implying that he's no more convinced of Edward's guilt than we were. Right. However, Perrin left Henry's services in disgrace soon after the Queen died, since he predicted that she would live to be 80. Oops. I thought it a fascinating person to do a subject about, but I checked his Wikipedia page. It's only four lines long, so I don't <laughs> think that's not going to happen. No, none of info. <laughs> no. So November the 10th, 1499, we're back at the trial. Perkin was in the, in the White Horn in Westminster before John de Vere, Earl of Oxford. He was charged with certain treasons. It was a bit vague. Yeah. Henry himself had said that when Perkin was caught at Bewley that he couldn't be treasonous because he wasn't English. But maybe when you plot the king's death, that overrides that little matter. Furneaux, the judge, in his indictment, said that Perkin had committed treason by his attempt to depose the king and escaping the king's custody. But we know that Perkin offered no defence, and we know that he was to be hanged, drawn and quartered, in the usual way. Mm. Of Perkin's co-conspirators, only three, including Astwood and Finch, and he was the one who had the dream of the bear in chains, were executed. Two were sent to the tower and the rest were outlawed. You think, why was this? I mean, if Henry wanted an end to the whole business, why not execute the lot of them? Because he'd, he'd been quite happy to execute people beforehand when he was trying to nip the uh, insurrection in the bud. Yeah. My theory, for what it's worth, is that maybe the outlawry was so that the real conspirators and Henry's men could all be outlawed and then the king's men could come back into the country and be rewarded. This is way too convoluted. <laughs> yes, isn't it? <laughs> I know. I'm picking. I'm picking up this uh, this historian's conspiracy theory vibe. I think. Well, I was thinking that way. Nobody would know that they've been double double agents, and they could be used again. And maybe Henry felt that he had enough on his conscience already. Maybe the Tudor era was all sweetness and love, and everyone was dancing around with flowers in their hair. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's odd that Henry was so reluctant to execute Perkin. I mean, it took two escape attempts, possibly instigated by Henry himself, before he did execute Perkin. Did he know or fear that he was the Duke of York? Hmm. Or was it only the pressure from the Spanish monarchs that pushed him into the final act? De Puebla, writing to Spain, said, I'm sure the King of England would do what your highnesses might advise. And it seems that he did. Well, we saw that young Edward's beheading took place out of sight on Tower Green. Not so, Perkins. A special scaffold was built at Tyburn. He was drawn on a hurdle from the tower to be faced with a huge crowd. And he had trouble climbing up the ladder because his hands were tied behind his back. He gave a very short speech, reported completely differently by several sources who heard what they wanted to hear. But we'll go with this one. He said, possibly, that he never was the person which he was named, nor anything of that blood, but a stranger born likewise as before he had shown. Now, it just seemed unlikely that he'd said this if it weren't true, but the confession you made just before you died was very important, and you didn't want to leave life with a lie on your lips. In England, is that the same everywhere, though? Is that a Catholic thing, or is that just an English thing? 
I would have thought it'd be a Catholic thing. I think so too, but I'm oh, just wondering. However, as far as saying what Henry wanted him to from the scaffold, Henry did still have control over his wife and child, so, you know. If the child existed. If the child existed. Perkin then blamed Atwater, twice mayor of York, <laughs> who was also condemned. That's the only thing we know about him. We've got to keep pushing it. <laughs> who was also condemned to die and was standing next to him on the scaffold. This may sound a pretty nasty thing for Perkin to say as his dying words, but it may have been pragmatic. By blaming Atwater, a man who had minutes, only minutes to live, Perkin was confirming the story of his confession, that he'd been picked up on the docks and groomed for the role of Duke in Ireland, thus taking away any blame for that part of the scam from Margaret. Or perhaps he just really hated John Atwater. I mean, if he felt that Atwater and Taylor had brainwashed him into playing the role that had led him to the scaffold, I quite understand. And to be beaten for weeks and weeks on end. Yeah. Perkin had been sentenced to be hanged, drawn and quartered, but in fact he died by hanging. Uh, was that plea bargaining? Possibly, but everyone seemed to be quite surprised to find him dead, so I think he was just, he died prematurely, maybe. They had intended to cut him down and quarter him, but he was already dead. Mm. Good for him. Mm. Honestly, that's a much easier way to go. Henry made sure that Ayala and the Puebla were in the crowd so that they could report back to Spain. It's okay, they're dead, the wedding can go ahead. (laughs) De Puebla, writing to the Spanish monarchs after the execution of Perkin. But now all has been thoroughly cleansed and purged, so that not a doubtful drop of royal blood remains in this kingdom, except the true blood of the king and queen, and above all, that of the Lord Prince Arthur. Apparently, Perkin died quietly and without fuss. He was just 25. Before we rate him, we still have the question I asked you at the beginning of all the episodes, all those hours ago. <laughs> Which of the following do you now think is, is true? He was a fraud. He really believed he was Richard, Duke of York, seduced by chivalric tales and the grooming of powerful people. He was Richard, Duke of York. I still don't think he was Richard, Duke of York. Mm. If he was, it would be a little more clear. I think. I'm going with that. (laughs) So I'm still going to say he's a fraud. I still think there's a potential that he could have been brainwashed into believing it, but... You think he was an out-and-out fraud? I think he was an out-and-out fraud. I think you you were number two last time. I think you said that he had been groomed for it. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know. I suppose I ought to be able to answer that. I've read enough about him. (laughs) But I just found the more I read about him... I think he probably was. It's that I, death confession you said right before he died that he never was uh, this person, which makes me think he was a fraud. Unless he'd been brainwashed and beaten to think the other way. 
Well, yeah, but that he was the Duke of York and had been had it knocked out of him. Yeah. Yeah, to start with, I completely dismissed the Duke of York aspect, but I, yeah, there was enough there to make it a possibility. But I think it's one or two. Mm-hmm. And I don't know which. <laughs> Neither do I. No. Nah. So finally, let's rate him. And this, like everything else about him, is going to be really, really tricky. <laughs> yeah. And fibbly. Intrigue. I mean, this is such a difficult one since it's so dependent on who he really was. Well, it also is dependent on whether or not he did any of those actions or if he was just following what everybody was telling him to do. Yeah, I got the impression he was not an amphibolizer. Everybody else around him was. Yeah, he just did what he was told by that particular person at that time. And when things mm-hmm. didn't go right, he ran. Yeah. I have to give him a zero. Oh, right. I've gone with a five because I felt I've just gone straight down the middle because there's so much on, on both sides. Oh. If he was an out-and-out fraud, then he could have been pulling all the strings himself. But if he'd been brainwashed or... <sighs> wow. Then um... it's then it's Atwater and Taylor pulling the strings. And if it's the Duke of York, well, can he be said to be intriguing at all? He just keeps stating... <laughs> the truth. This is who I am. So I thought five was safest, because I just didn't know. I don't, I can't do a five. Five indicates that at least he was trying to intrigue, and every time it came to any sort of push, he ran. Well, he wasn't military, we know that. Yeah. It's luckily we haven't got a battliness round, because he would definitely have a zero for that. I'll give him a one for an I don't know. But we don't have anything definitive saying that he was actually intriguing. I'll go for four, I think, because I I fear more to that side than the other side, but I just don't know. Okay. Antiperistasis. Rise and fall. Well, again, (laughs) if he was the lad from Tornai, he's rocketed his way up the social ladder. Yes, and then plummeted. He became a king-in-waiting if he was the duke of York, he ended up in prison and then on scaffolds. So, but either way, he's changed the circumstance. He's either gone up or he's gone down or he's gone up and down. I mean, if he's the Duke of York, he went way down and then he went up again and then down again. Yeah. I think for, I think for rise and fall, he does a lot of rising and falling, whoever he is. I'm going to give him an eight for a couple of reasons. One, he had a lot of help for people, other people helping him get there. It wasn't all him. And I dropped him one because he didn't actually make it to be king. Yeah, I'm going to go with an eight. Yeah, I went with an eight just because whoever he is, he's up and down all the time. Martyrdom. Well, he died for a cause. But he didn't want to. (laughs) Nobody wants to die. But... I mean, was it his own cause? Was it Atwood and Taylor's? Was it Margaret's? Was it Maximilian's? Was it James? Was it the Cornish rebels? <sighs> Ultimately, it was his own cause because he would be the one that would be king. I'm going to have to go with an eight again because he did attempt to not die. But then he made things worse by escaping. Yeah. Like he was deliberately trying not to die by escaping. So yes, he died. Not from a conviction. I went for a seven because I thought it is a, it is a cause. 
and he did die for it. Mm-hmm. But there's 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 enough of a thought of perhaps it wasn't his own cause. Perhaps it was, it was all the other people pushing him along. Yeah. So eight and seven. Eighteen. Eighteen. Did he leave it anything? As posterity. Well, I found it interesting to see who was affected by Perkins' little escapade. Okay. And I'm sure you'll think of more, but I came up with the merchants and cloth manufacturers who were thrown out of work by the trade, trade embargo with Burgundy. Yes. Margaret and Maximilian, who were securing loans for Perkin, the security of which was getting him to be king. Using his wife. Using his wife. And... Well, we may we haven't done Margaret or Maximilian, so we don't know what happened to the loans in the end. No. Henry probably secured peace with France because Perkin was at the French court. Right. He might not have done so otherwise. Ferdinand and Isabella offered Philip their own their daughter Joanna to get Maximilian to drop Perkin. James the Fourth courting Perkin meant turning his back on France and against the old alliance. So Perkin was having the effect of changing people's allegiances right across Europe. The English taxpayer, who had to foot the bill for the war with Scotland, leading to the Cornish Rebellion. Yeah. And he brought syphilis to two different countries. Oh, God. <laughs> so. And he affected uh, Catherine and Arthur's marriage. Catherine was sure that she was going through her troubles because her marriage was made from blood. Mm. Yeah, I'd actually say when you put it all that way, it's really high. He hit everybody. And the Cornishmen had reasons to remember him because Henry was obsessed with collecting every last bit of money owed to him in the West Country. And in 1504, Parliament tainted the Cornishmen who'd asked Perkin to lead them. I'm not sure why they left it so long. I mean, this is 70 years later. But... So that must have been particularly galling since they already knew that he wasn't who he said he was. So... Yeah. And obviously Catherine remembered him, her... The, the wife, yeah. she wore black for the rest of her life. Really? But after Henry's death, she did go on to marry three more times, but apparently she wore black. And if Perkins' conspiracy had not existed, it's quite likely that neither would the decade of fear and injustice we saw in the Dudley and Empson's episode. Yes. It might even have tipped the scales with the way Henry ruled. Yeah. Well, having to fork out the £60,000 for the Scottish campaign. Yes. And Perkin appears in literature several times. Yes, he does. Mary Shelley wrote a novel about him in 1830. Apparently it's completely unreadable, but she was convinced <laughs> Perkin was the Duke of York. <laughs> I was going to buy a copy and I thought, oh, I'm not going to buy a copy of a book I can't read. Yeah. <laughs> Same year, Alexander Campbell wrote a book about Perkin Warbeck in the court of James IV, and he was convinced he was a self-delusionist. Horace Walpole, historical doubts on the life and reign of Richard III, thought that Henry VII's behaviour implied that he thought that Perkin was the Duke of York. Frederick Schiller start, started to write a play about him. John Ford, the 16th, 17th century playwright, wrote a play called Perkin Warbeck, and apparently it's a very good play. And I looked online for a production of it, but all I could find was a couple of Zoom meetings, which is not quite the same thing. No. And Lord Alfred Douglas, and that's Bosey, uh, Oscar Wilde's lover, wrote a poem about him. Really? At Tourney in Flanders I was born, foredoomed to splendour and sorrow, for I was a king when they cut the corn and they strangled me tomorrow. Oh, why was I made so red and white, so fair and straight and tall? And why were my eyes so blue and bright and my hands so white and small? 
and why was my hair like yellow silk and curled like the hair of a king, and my body like the soft new milk that the maids bring from milking? And it goes on in a similar and rather awful vein for 41 stanzas. Oh my goodness. Ending, and may I not fall faint or sick till I reach at last to the goal, and I pray that that rope may choke me quick and Christ receive my soul. And on top of all that, Perkin Warbeck has a pub named after him in Taunton. Oh, that makes it a ten. <laughs> this is so cool. <laughs> so anyway, more to be team than you would think. I think I am going to go with a ten. He had a I huge think so. effect. And I, when I have talked to people about this podcast, I've been asked several times if we're going to do Perkin Warbeck. It's funny because I, a few people I've mentioned have said, oh, hang on, I know him. Where do I know him from? And I've said what, what he does, and they say, no, no. I don't think so. And then I say, also, he's a pub in Taunton, and they go, oh, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I was surprised at how few, maybe I've got some really stupid friends, but I was surprised <laughs> no. at how few people knew much about him, <laughs> given that we all live around Taunton. So, yeah. Yeah. So what wow. did you decide for Batim? I didn't hear. I think 10. 10? I've gone for 10, yeah. Wow, 20 for Batim. Who would have thought it? Not me. Flaunt of bleeding flaunt. Flaunt of flaunt. So the portrait's around. I've sent you a picture of him. So it's a drawing, black and white drawing. It's based on a... I think it's a later sketch, but it is a copy of one that was done in the flesh. So it's a bit of I mean, it's a portrait. Okay, hold on. I want to pull up a picture of Edward the Fourth and see what he looks like compared mm-hmm. to each other. Well, neither one of them are detailed enough for me to tell. <laughs> Everything about this picture is the very latest fashion, apparently. The angle of the hat. It looks like it looks to me like a Thunderbird's cap. Yes, it does. His surcoat has got one side plain and the other pleated. If you can see that, no. that apparently was very fashionable at the time. Okay. I think I think perhaps I should have got this another picture that shows him further down as well. We'll put that one on the on the website. He's got gold chains, big expensive ones. His hair is shoulder length, and that style is known as nesh, and it's curled in two quiffs on either side of his face. Yeah, I see those. Yeah, and that would have been achieved using hot tongs and a paste made up of resin, egg white, and sulphur. Oh. Some fashionable men actually wore hair nets at night. Oh, to keep them that way? Yeah. Oh. And even how he holds his head is called the king's angle. It's dipped slightly to the left, suggestive of piety and nobility. And everybody was really impressed by the way he looks. I mean, he looks all right, doesn't he? Nice hair. He's got one dull eye. Yeah. Which is hard to tell, really. I don't know if it's the drawing or if it's him, but it looks like yeah. he's got one eye that's lower than the others, which is mm. kind of reminiscent of Henry the Seventh himself. Got yeah, he's got a had a, a dodgy eye, didn't he? Yeah. Um, he looks quite quite a self facing quiet man, which is which is why I was surprised that he wore such an enormous codpiece. <laughs> he doesn't look like a man who'd wear a big codpiece. <laughs> oh. You can say that for him. <laughs> So, what do you reckon? The expression on his face is very similar to what I expected. It is vapid. 
He hasn't got that little smile that we saw in a few of them with with Henry the Sixth. No, it. and he doesn't look determined. No, he looks like. But there's... then none of them have. None of them really do, do they? I mean, all surprised when you look at the pictures of the kings. Mm-hmm. How away with the fairies they look. You'd think they'd be quite martial. I suppose that's why the pictures of Henry VIII standing with his legs apart and full face his, on. And... Yeah, that's why they were so. It was so extraordinary. It was so different from anything that had come over the last few kings. Hmm. I don't know. I'm not impressed with it. It's just blah. <laughs> I'll go with the six because it does. Shows what he thinks his rank should have been with the gold chains, mm. and and the king and the king's tilt, the king's look as well. Yeah, yeah, and it's about him. But other than that, like, there's no, we're not seeing any of the symbolism we were hoping to see. No, not yet. No, yeah, I'll go with a six. I think the most impressive thing I learned about that was that men wore hairnets. <laughs> <laughs> Which has nothing to do with him. <laughs> no, it doesn't. Yep, six six seems fair enough. So, sixteen. A total of sixty-two. Sixty-two? Well, that's not bad. I mean, most of that is from, from Batim. Yeah. He's not done badly at all, I don't think. Not at all. He hasn't done badly in our ranking system. No. His life, uh, it was a little different story. Yeah. yeah. I'm really hoping that the next person I get is very straightforward. <laughs> Isn't this hilarious? You and I were both like, I just needed to get past it, Richard Empson and Edmund Dudley. And now you're just like, I just, I never want to talk about Perkin again. <laughs> oh, I found him fascinating. And I found all the different theories about him fascinating. I just found it so difficult no. putting yeah. them all together to, so that they made sense yeah. and didn't just swamp swamp in facts and well not facts <laughs> <laughs> there were no facts swamp in <laughs> speculation. A few times I felt myself going under, but there we go. So anyway, what do you reckon? Chew delicious or not chew delicious? Are they chew delicious or what? I think I know what your answer is going to be from the look in your face. No. 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 The no. fact that there were so many people in this episode that kept saying they were pushing him or they were encouraging him or they were telling him what and when to do, he he wasn't he wasn't the pushing factor in it was not his own ambition, it was not his own idea, it was not his own initiative. But he's got a pub named after him. No, I quite agree. Okay, guys. <laughs> every every time it's somebody, it's it's Charles either pushing him or inventing Maximilian. him. Maximilian, Maximilian, those three, yeah, over in Flanders, <laughs> he and just then went it's along with it. James is manipulating. Even the Earl of Desmond seems to be using him. Yeah, yeah. No, sorry, Perkin. No, not happening. Okay. Oh, I get to pull your Who's next. next? Who's next? Who's I've been, next? I've been, oh, okay. I feel as if I've been living with this man for months and months and months. Getting my box out with the names, stir it around, and pick one. Okay, what did we get here? What did we get here? Somebody really simple. Maybe not simple, but this is going to be awesome. 
John de la Pole, the first Earl of Lincoln. Not simple. Not simple, but exciting. <laughs> and more interesting than his old dad. Yeah, gosh, that man. <laughs> oh, that's pretty cool. I'm okay. excited for that one. Yeah. I bet I come across loads and loads of theories. <laughs> and I'm... I should just tear them up. If it says, if it starts saying, well, I've got this new theory, I should just think, no, in the bin, in the bin. I don't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I... I can probably ease your mind in that when I was doing his dad, there was no question about this man's behavior and what he was doing. Mm. There was no other possibility given to me, but it is it, way more interesting than his dad. There was one possible either or, and that's did Richard III actually say he is his successor? Yeah. Or did he make Edward his successor, or did he make nobody? But anyway, I'm sure it'll all become clear. But that's pretty exciting. Yes. Yeah. So bye-bye, Perkin. Bye-bye, Perkin. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> There's been a few that we've done like that. We've gotten to oh, the end. Oh, no, it's gone... not bye-bye, Perkin, because we've got... Well, it says bye-bye, Perkin, but it's the uh, conspiracies we're going to be doing with a special episode. What right. was I thinking? I haven't got rid of him at all. Oh, I don't know. Take a break for a bit before you could dive back in. <laughs> it's not confusing, the next one, because oh, it is okay. fact factually, it's all there. It's all about Henry's spies, how he used oh, spies good. to help and to work out where he was. It's all a lot more clear. Perfect. Sad for the people involved. Unpleasant for the people involved. <laughs> <laughs> That is the end of our episode on Perkin Osbeck, Perkin Warbeck, Piers Osbeck, <laughs> Richard Duke of York. Nope. Nope. Yes. <laughs> Richard Duke of York. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> we hope oh. you've enjoyed it and will join us for the next episode on... We're going to have a special episode in between, but the next one will be Isabella of Castile. It will. Thank you for listening. You can find details of the podcast and contact us on In the meantime, I will be brief, for my short date of breath is not so long as is a tedious tale. The weight of this sad time we must obey. Speak what we feel, not what we ought to say. Goodbye. Goodbye. Face my plantagenet. Make
Maximilian and I will make a king of you yet. When you're king, you will bring all the silo to me. It will get rid of Henry, I won't live in penury. It's going to be great when I'm uh, you're on the throne. When you're king, everything will be just as it should I'll be standing